Well, this morning we're going to complete our series titled about David titled Chasing God's Heart. And as you know, David was truly a remarkable man. And over the past several weeks, as we have looked at the many different facets of his heart, we've learned that each one of them helped to develop him into the kind of man that, that was given, aptly given the title, a man after God's own heart. And I believe the importance of this series for us is to realize that our hearts are very much the same as David's. Our hearts are, are very diverse. And at times when our flesh is battling against the spirit, our hearts can be divided as well. And we too can fall like we saw David do because we're not perfect. And David wasn't perfect either. He was far from it. And yet through it all, it was his love for God. It was, for, it was because of his trust in God that the door for God's power was open to be manifested in his life to do great things through the good, through the bad, and yes, even the ugly times, David truly had a heart for God. And so to end this series today, this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about having a heart for God. You see, I believe the, the greatest misconception within the church is when we believe that whenever we mess up, we're disqualified. Oh, there it goes. I'm done. I'm disqualified for service. We start to believe that God is done with us, that he will have to use a, another person, someone who is more righteous, someone who is more holy than we are. Well, I'm glad whenever David messed up, he didn't take on that mindset. I'm glad he did not count himself out because God couldn't have used him like he did if he had. And there's something we've learned throughout this series that we must never forget. And that is that God looks at the heart through all of David's ups and downs, through his humanity and his struggles, in spite of his shortcomings and his failures. There has been none like him in all of Israel. There was no one before and there was no one who came after David who brought more stability and more prosperity to Israel or kept Israel more in touch with the one true God. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was a miracle of God working through the life of a, of a willing vessel. He can do things through us that we never, ever thought possible. Thank goodness David never counted himself out. So let me say to you this morning, no matter who you are, no matter what mistakes you've made, no matter how you've sinned, if you truly have a heart for God, God will empower you to, to accomplish things you never thought possible. And you can leave a legacy from your own life as well. You see, God takes broken vessels like, like you and me, and he puts us back together again, and he makes us stronger than we were before. And when you combine that with an unwavering trust in God, there is nothing that can stop you from accomplishing his purposes in your life. Clearly, David had his great moments and his not so great moments. And I don't know about you, but I can personally relate to that. And, and I don't know of any human being who has ever existed who lived through higher highs or lower lows than David did. I mean, just think about it. We watched as the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's home and he bypassed the more obvious sons 
to choose David, the runt of the litter, to be the next king of Israel, to be anointed king. Because God said, man looks at the outward appearance, but I, he said, I look at the heart. And God loved David's heart. He loved his his heart of wild abandon, his deep reflection. He loved his stubborn kind of love. God loved David's faithfulness and his passion for the things of God and the fact that he trusted God implicitly. And it was within that trust that, that God would always empower David to do things that most of us would not think could be done. We watched as, as while a kid, David had so much faith in God that he single-handedly took on Goliath. He beat the odds. With God's help, he defeated a foe that, that was so intimidating, so fierce, that, that the mighty warriors in Saul's army, well, they were paralyzed to even act. We observed David in the cave of Adullam, the cave of Adullam, a place where God seemed to be absent. It was a place of, of great confusion and great disappointment. But we learned during that lesson that God does some of his best work in caves because caves are where God resurrects dead stuff in our spiritually dead life. We saw David dance with excitement and joy as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into Jerusalem. It was a real high, and yet we observed a a very, very low, low when we learned how far he could fall when David committed adultery and murder and lived for a period of time in spiritual hypocrisy. We also watched as David stood at the gate overlooking the city and he was weeping uncontrollably over the death of his son, the very son who tried to overthrow David as king. And through that painful experience, we learned that what a priceless thing it is to have, have healthy relationships in our life. Through it all, David led one amazing life. He went from shepherd boy to king, from fugitive to conqueror. He was abandoned, and yet he knew friendship like few human beings would ever know. He was a tender worshiper, and yet he was a violent warrior. He was a murderer and an adulterer. But in spite of it all, he was still a man after God's own heart a man who had some of the greatest mountaintop experiences as well as some of the the lowest valley experiences anyone could ever experience. And the reason that I did this series on David is because we've all got something to learn from his life. Whoever you are, no matter what you are currently doing, you have something to learn from David's story. And my hope is that all of us here at High Point would would return to the story of David again and again in our devotional lives, that that we would keep reading his story, that we would keep reading his Psalms and allow them to guide us as we pray and let them become some kind of a spiritual friend to you because they're powerful. I hope that the details of David's life will strengthen you, especially when you don't think you measure up. Never forget the lessons that we have learned in David's life. And remember that God is never done with you. So don't ever give up on yourself. And so today, as we wrap up this series, 
I want to look at another magnificent aspect of David's illustrious life that perhaps you've never thought about before. I'm talking about David's name and how it is used in the, in the New Testament. I want to show you the significant connection between David and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, it was through David's lineage, his bloodline, that Jesus would come from. Perhaps you remember Luke's account of Jesus' birth. In Luke chapter two, verse four, it says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And check this out. The very first sentence in the New Testament opens with David's name. Matthew 1.1 says this, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And the last words of Jesus recorded in the scriptures contain David's name as well. Revelation 22.16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So here's a question I want to ask you today. It's a rhetorical question. You can answer it in your mind, but why is Jesus called the son of David? That's a distinction that has been given to no one else in the scriptures. He is not addressed as the son of Moses or the son of Elijah, but over and over again, he, he is called the son of David. Why is that? Do you think it's because of David's faultless moral track record? Absolutely not. In fact, there are Old Testament uh, characters whose lives were far purer than David's, Joseph being one of them. I also do not think it was David's giftedness or his, or his good looks or his courage or his character. In fact, I don't think it's about David at all. I think the reason that Jesus is called the son of David has to do with what God was up to in David's life. I think that title, son of David, stresses two aspects of Jesus' identity and mission. And I wanna talk about their implications today for you and I. The first reason that Jesus is called son of David is the name son of David was a title of hope. It was a supreme title of hope for any Israelite. You see, David's reign as king will forever be remembered as the golden age of Israel. Think about that for a minute. The first king was Saul, but he was a disappointment, and he divided the country. But then David comes, becomes king, and he unifies the, the country. David brought freedom from their enemies, he loved and he led God's people into unprecedented prosperity and devotion to Almighty God. They had never been in a situation like that before. And then his son Solomon reigned largely as a kind of gift of David's accomplishments. And as many of you know, after Solomon, the country was divided into two kingdoms. Israel was in the south, Judah was in the north. There were two separate kings in a divided community. Then after that came centuries of exile and oppression 
by one foreign power after another. And all of this led right up to Jesus' day, the whole history of Israel. There was only one brief moment in their entire history when the whole country was free, when they were united, when they were devoted and at peace. And it was under the reign of King David, God's anointed. So understand the name son of David became a title of hope. Well, by the first century, the glory of Israel was long gone. It was just a distant memory. And for way longer than than anyone could remember, Israel had just been a pawn. They had been pawned to the Babylonians, to the Assyrians, to the Greeks, and to the Romans. Nothing was the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be that way for God's people, not like this. And the hope of Israel was that someday we'll have a king like that again. Someday we'll have another David. Well, Jesus was called the root of Jesse, the son of David, the Messiah. And that word Messiah simply means the anointed one. And that came from the anointing of David. And the people thought when the son of David comes, he'll set things straight. This will all get sorted out. Well, then Jesus did come. But because he didn't arrive with all of the pomp and circumstances that they thought he should or could, many refused to follow. But others did recognize Jesus. People recognized him. They said, there's never been anyone like this before. And it is a very touching thing that you can look at the New Testament and look at how the title Son of David is used. Very often it is used as a, as a cry for help for those who would otherwise be hopeless. In Matthew 9, 27, it says, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him crying out and saying, son of David, have mercy on us. Then in Matthew 15, 22, it says, and behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Then one of the greatest stories in the New Testament is the story of, of Bartimaeus. In Mark 10, verses 47 and 48, it says this, and when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, Jesus had them bring Bartimaeus to him because Jesus, the son of David, loves it when people cry out to him and ask him for help. He's never too busy. He is never too preoccupied. He loves to give hope. So as you think about all this hope that Christ Jesus brings, let me ask you this morning, What do you need most from him today? If you could ask the son of David for anything like Bartimaeus did, what would make you shout? What would make you want to cry out? Maybe it's for a physical healing, a physical healing, or maybe even a healing of a broken heart for yourself or for a family member or or, or for a friend. Perhaps it's, it's just for peace 
because you're tormented all the time by, by worry and by fear. Maybe if you could ask him for anything, you would ask him for, for joy because you're aware you're not experiencing much joy in your life, but you want it so much. Individually and corporately, we all have needs that come from the son of David. And when we ask in accordance to his will, with sincerity of heart, and when we humble ourselves, he always provides. And his provision always brings us hope. His promises bring us hope. His word brings us hope. But the greatest hope that we receive is in eternity, in the presence of God because of the work on the cross that the son of David endured on our behalf. This is a very important facet of this title, Son of David, the title of hope. And now every time you hear Jesus Christ, Son of David, I want you to remember the hope that he brings to you and to me. But then there is a second nuance to this title, Son of David. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter one. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you. And if you want to just follow along, all the scriptures will be up on the screen behind me. But another reason that Jesus is called the son of David is because the name son of David was a title of humanity. It's certainly a title of hope, as I had explained earlier, but it also emphasizes the humanity of Jesus in that he was a real person. In Romans 1, 3, and 4, it says this about Jesus, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of God and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was the son of God. Yes, he was divine, but he was also the son of David, a human being who walked this earth in flesh and in blood. So you'll see in Matthew chapter one, verses one through 16, a genealogy. A genealogy is basically a series of who begat whom. We see a lot of this in the Old Testament and most of us tend to skip over those long, long verses because there are a bunch of names that we can't even pronounce. And, and so, I think we have a tendency also to, to skip over that even in the New Testament uh, because it's kind of a boring way. When you think about it, it's kind of a boring way for Matthew to, to start his book. But if you know anybody whose family is really into their genealogy and they're greatly consumed by that, you'll learn that they can tell you where they came from and it goes way, way, way back. They, they can go back to, to much earlier times. Sometimes it's amazing how far people can trace their roots. And I know websites like Ancestry.com have helped a lot of people to sort those things out. Well, the Jews, you have to understand, were very much into their genealogy. This was very exciting stuff to them. They loved genealogy tables and they were used to establish their identity as the people of God because this was such an important title or, or theme to them in their life. Now, often these tables that you read were, were, with, were included in them were the names of all kinds of heroes. 
But, but there are a few things that you need to understand. These genealogy tables that, are, that provided the background for their heroes only contained Jews, only Israelites. You would find no other names in there. Their purpose was partly to establish the purity of their bloodline. In fact, in those days, a priest had to show an unbroken pedigree to prove pure Israelite bloodline all the way back to Aaron, Moses' brother. And, And if there was any foreign blood that was mixed in, that individual would be disqualified from serving in the priesthood. Another thing about these tables is it only contained the names of men. Because in those days, women had no legal rights. A genealogy table would never say so-and-so whose mother begat so-and-so. It just would not be considered relevant. Nothing against you ladies. This is just the culture that, that, that they came from. This is the truth. Thirdly, these tables would only contain the names of, of respectable and heroic kind of people. A genealogy that, that contained uh, scandalous or shady, if you will, characters was pretty much unheard of, and it was most certainly undesired. I say all of that because as we look at the genealogy of the son of David, of Jesus Christ, found in Matthew chapter one, I want to point out a few names here. First, if you'll look at Matthew 1, verse 3, it says, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I'll tell you a little bit about her, but if you don't remember her story, you can find it in Genesis chapter 38. You might want to take some time to read it. But first of all, she's a woman. She doesn't belong on this table culturally or traditionally. Secondly, she was not Jewish. She was considered Aramean. She was an outsider of foreign blood. Thirdly, not only that, but she had a very scandalous story. Just to summarize it very briefly for you, she was widowed. And if you read the scripture, she disguised herself as a prostitute and seduced and slept with her father-in-law, Judah, so that she could bear children. Such a scandalous story And yet here she is in the genealogy of Jesus. If you look at Matthew, the first part of Matthew 1.5, it says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This is another woman that you might remember from the story of Jericho. She was not Jewish. She was a Canaanite, another outsider. And if you remember her story, She didn't disguise herself as a prostitute. She was one, but she helped the spies who came in to scout Jericho. And so she was saved and she played a huge part in this story. In the second half of Matthew 1.5, we read Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. This is the third woman to be mentioned in Jesus' genealogy that doesn't belong there. And Ruth, likewise, is not Jewish. She was a Moabite, which were pagan enemies of Israel. 
She lived with the Israelites because of her mother-in-law, but she ends up in this genealogy. Then if you look at Matthew 1.6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, here's a fourth, fourth woman in the genealogy that doesn't belong there. Do you remember her name? Bathsheba. And of course, we covered several weeks ago of the adulterous relationship that David had with Bathsheba. And it also talks about Uriah, who is known as Uriah the Hittite. In other words, he was a foreigner. And almost certainly Bathsheba was also a foreigner. And if not, even worse than that, she married a foreigner. So here it is. We see the beginnings of the genealogy of Jesus, the hero of the New Testament, the hero of the human race, the savior of the world. And there are four characters, not men, but women, not Jews, but Gentiles, all considered unclean, and all but one of them involve stories that would be considered great sin. And that kind of lineage, ladies and gentlemen, as I said earlier, would disqualify anyone from being in the priesthood. Any devout Jew would have been shocked and scandalized just by the first few words or sentences in Matthew's story. So what in the world is going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. I think that Matthew is tipping his hand right at the beginning of his writing. This is one of the most beautiful bits in the, in the Holy Scriptures. He is saying that Jesus Christ, the son of David, is not just taking upon himself the representation of the whole fallen, sinful human race, but he is also offering salvation to the whole fallen, sinful human race. The story of Jesus is not just good news for a few religious superstars or one particular ethnic group. Jesus is now throwing the doors of the kingdom of heaven wide open. The kingdom of God is now open to Gentiles as well as Jews, to women as well as men, to spiritual giants as well as spiritual midgets. The playing field has now been leveled, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus is going to take upon himself the guilt of prostitutes and adulterers and pagans and murderers and sinners, just like old David. And, and, and therein lies the difficulties of, of the fact that the Jews had such a hard time following Jesus. Jesus comes along and he says, you there, you can be a part of my story. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, I, I know you think that, that I am shocked and scandalized by your sin, but you can be a part of my story. I choose you. Jesus became the son of David, not because David was perfect. Oh no, as we've read, he was far from it. Jesus was the son of David precisely because David was a fallen sinner, just like you and me. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the beauty of the gospel message. And that is what is so incredible about the Holy Scriptures. It ties everything together for a reason, 
for a purpose. So we have greater understanding of these things. Jesus took on our humanity and our sin. And he offered to partner with us if we would just do what David did. And that is to say, yes, Jesus. Yes, I receive you. Let me share with you what I think is one of the best verses regarding David in the New Testament. It's in Acts 13, 36. And it says, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Well, everything but that body decaying part was, is great. But I'm focusing on how David served God's purposes in his generation. Now he did that because of the grace of the son of David. David had his day. He was born. He was handsome. He had gifts. He got some things right. He got a lot of things wrong. But David himself, for all of his sin and all of his brokenness, served God in his generation. But then his time passed. And what I want to simply say to all of you this morning is today is your day. This is your generation. And this only lasts a brief period of time. But this is your time right here, right now, right at this moment. And the son of David says to you today, come, come and be a part of my story. You can serve my father in your generation. You can make a difference for my kingdom if you'll just say yes to me. You know, I asked you earlier, if you could ask anything, what is it you would like from God? Because I know we all pray. I know that, that we ask a lot of things of God. We ask for blessing. We ask for wisdom. We ask for protection. We ask for discernment. We ask for anointing. All that's okay. God not only hears, but he answers our prayers. Because I believe that what we ask for, if it is in accordance with God's will for our life, that he is always more than happy to provide. But since the intent of this series has been about developing a God-centered life individually, I want to ask you a second question this morning. What would you like to give God? You see, truly, to develop a God-centered life, it's not always about what we get from God, but even more so, I believe, what it is that we give to God. David was able to accomplish the many things that he did through God's power and anointing because he was deeply committed to the Lord. It seems in the modern-day church, too many of us want the benefits of serving the Lord when we're not willing to dedicate our lives fully to him. For many, Christianity is a superficial thing whereby people claim the title Christian with little to no commitment whatsoever. So what is it that you could give God that you're currently holding back? Maybe it's something as simple as, as a special time of prayer that you will set aside every day just between you and God. Maybe it's devoting time each day to, to studying the word of God, 
trying to learn more about the scriptures. Maybe it's, it's something that you need to give up. Some kind of a habit that you know is not good for you, either, either health-wise or emotionally or spiritually. You need to get rid of it. You need, to, you need to kick it to the side because you know it's not pleasing to God. Maybe it's taking your faith and And all of the stuff that you have been taught and all of the things that you have learned, all of the things that God has shown you and grown you as a Christian, and you need to start pouring all of that energy and all that knowledge and all of that history into another person, discipling another individual. Maybe it's it's stepping out in faith and serving in some capacity in your church, blessing other people while you serve. You see, whenever you put legs to your faith, and actually do something for the Lord, your faith goes to an entirely different level. It's just like your muscles. When you exercise your muscles, you actually gain more physical strength. Well, it's the same way when you put your faith into action. You know, the Dead Sea located in the Middle East, it's called that because there are no tributaries to send the water out that it takes in. And and what happens is the water becomes stagnant. And sometimes that very much describes our faith. If all we do is continually receive and receive and take in God's word and take in his blessing and take in his anointing, but, but when we never allow it to pass through us to other people, well, guess what? We get stagnant too. There has to be an outlet for the spirit of God in us to work through us. Maybe what you can give God today is, is to reconcile with somebody. We talked about that a couple weeks ago that, that you have an estranged relationship with. Maybe it's, it's stepping out in faith and starting to give some of your financial resources to the work of the Lord. Maybe it's something as simple as saying, perhaps for the first time, God, I'm not going to keep you at arm's length any longer. I want to experience everything that you have to offer me. I'm going to take the restrictions off the table and open myself and my heart up fully to you. What do you want to give God? David, in spite of all of his shortcomings, in spite of all of his failures, he opened himself up fully to everything that God had for him. He believed in God and he believed God could do anything. And because of that, David walked boldly and God was able to do great exploits throughout his life. And I'd just like to say to you this morning, there are some modern day Davids in this place right now. Some of you know it already. Some of you don't know it yet, but God does. And he longs for people who will rise to the occasion who will seek him and commit their lives to him so that he can empower them just like he did David. And my prayer and my hope is that if you've walked away remembering anything from this series that we spent so much time on, it would be that God works through flawed people who have hearts for him. That is a truth. That is a truth that will never die. And speaking of flawed people, let me just say, welcome to the Flawed People Club. We're glad to have you. We're flawed. 
Get over it. <laughs> we gotta let the Lord work through us in spite of our flaws and our failures. And you know what? Those flaws and failures will become less and less. Then every once in a while you'll do a doozy and you'll go, boy, just when I thought I was getting better. <laughs> but he will continue to work through you even after failures. Don't ever count God out. What happens is no longer when you do that will your past mistakes be an excuse for you to, to just give up and to no longer be used by God. The son of David chooses you today to be a part of his story so that you can serve God in your generation like David did. But the question becomes, ladies and gentlemen, will you be obedient to his call? Will you give all of yourself to him today? If you will, then get ready for the ride of your life because when God's anointing and when God's power is unleashed in your life, you will never live the same way ever again. Are you chasing God's heart this morning? If you are, let me tell you something, he can use you and you'll begin to slay giants in your own life that you thought before would only defeat you. You will become a person who reconciles broken relationships and peace will be brought back into your heart. You'll be able to go through your own cave experiences and come out the other side even more strong and more deeply committed to God than ever before. And God will choose you, by the way, over seemingly more qualified candidates to do his work. Why? Because you have a better heart. Your heart is for God and you're doing it for the right reasons and you're not doing it to impress people. You're doing it to serve the Lord. Scott, will you come forward? Help me to close this thing down. Can I share a bit of my heart with you real quick? God has been showing me that we are experiencing minuscule amounts of his goodness and his power and his peace. And I'm not trying to diminish those things because oh, how great they are. Doesn't matter what they are. Whenever we, we, we experience these things from God, they are phenomenal. But I, I say to you this morning as a church, as my church family, why should we settle for snacks we can have a full five-course meal from his bountiful table. You see, God is looking for a church filled with people who don't care what people think about them. You know, it was such a big thing in my life. I think I explained several weeks ago, I kind of came from a family and we were always told, you know, be prim and proper, you know, be... And I'm not saying be an idiot. I'm just saying it was always, we were always conscious of our surroundings and who we were around and don't make a misstep. Don't say something stupid. Don't do whatever. And that carries over into one's spiritual life because we know that more than half the world doesn't believe in Jesus or at least is not in a relationship with him. And so when we're around all of us, we cheer each other on because, woo, you know, we, 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 we're great. God's doing great things in us. But He's, God is looking for us to quit worrying about what the outside world thinks. And I think we've all come to understand that the time is short. 
Things are happening rapidly, and I, and I don't believe we're going to be around here a whole lot longer. I really don't. We were talking about retirement the other day, and I said, I don't even think we're going to see retirement. Now, I know people have been saying that your whole life. But when I just see the accelerated way things are happening in this world and how quickly things are changing, just almost overnight, you can see things have been set into motion. It's coming to an end. And so why should we care what people think of us? If we've got the best news that there ever is, if we've got the answer to the big puzzle, which we do. He is looking, God is looking for followers who will unashamedly stand in this dark world as a beacon of light, a beacon of goodness, a voice that is contrary to all the talking heads that are going on trying to tell us things that are not true. The lies that are going on in the world today and the things that they're telling us to fall in line to and believe and it is just amazing. It is just completely a lie. It's frightening. They are brainwashing you. They, the politicians, the press, talk shows, they're brainwashing you to believe lies. We can't buy into those lies. Not for the sake of expediency, not for the sake of unity. We have to be a voice in the darkness. It's like the story of the king with no clothes. I don't know if you remember it. People tell him that he has the most majestic clothing ever, that the man made him. He's buck naked. He's walking, waving to his subjects, and everybody's going, oh, look at the king. Look at the king. How beautiful, majesty. And one little boy in the crowd goes, he's naked. That's America today, isn't it? We're believing stuff that is just wrong. And God wants us to stand up and be strong in our faith. He wants us to love people. Don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about being violent and insurrections and bombings. And I'm talking about loving people with the truth of Jesus Christ and not buying into the lies. You see, the, the, the days of God working in miraculous ways is not over. There's a reason we don't see the things to the degree that we read about in the Bible or maybe that some of you old timers remember when you were younger. It's because we're not giving God our all. Well, Pastor David, what, what does that look like? Well, let me turn the question back to you. What gets your greatest attention? What do you spend the majority of your time thinking about and participating in? What is it that you are most passionate about? Look at your checkbook. Look at your, your credit card statements, your debit card statements, and see where most of your expenditures are going to. It's that activity, it's that hobby, it's that relationship that is receiving your greatest loyalty and your greatest attention. And it's, it's the thing that is getting your highest level of attention and priority and that you are passionate about. And you are allowing that thing to pull you away from your time with God because you are so fully committed to that thing. But you gotta understand that that is not where God wants to be positioned in your life. He wants to be in the place of that thing. 
And that thing can fall way down the scale of priority. And David, in spite of all of the, the difficulties he experienced from the mistakes he made, he was still fully committed to God. And look at what God was able to do through him. And if you're here today and you realize that perhaps you haven't been a man or a woman after God's heart, you can change all that. You can reestablish your priorities within your own life and within your family's life. It's never too late. And no, you haven't gone too far. David certainly is a great example of this. The, the son of David, Jesus Christ, waited patiently for him, and he waits, or, or God waited patiently for him, and Christ w waits patiently for you and I to recommit our lives fully to him and giving him our all. He wants to see his power at work within us because he knows that once you experience his power being manifested through you, that your life will forever change. Will all of you who can please stand to your feet? Developing a God-centered life is, is about commitment. It's about dedication to God. It's about putting Jesus in his rightful place and that is on the throne of your life. It's putting him ahead of so much of the stuff and, and the things that in the whole scheme of life are really meaningless stuff and things. It's living to please God. It's not living to please people because people are fickle and, and their target of approval is always moving. It changes with the weather, but God is unchanging. Therefore, you know what God desires from you and it never changes. So there's no mystery living in his love and living in his power. So a God-centered life is about God being a part of everything you do and everything that you are. You don't compartmentalize God. You don't have your church life in one box. And then when you leave this place on Sunday, you go into your non-church life in another box that the two have to meld. And when you allow him to be Lord of everything in your life, not just in name, but through your actions, through your attitude, you will begin to live a life of such great blessing that you'll wonder why you had not done that before. You will bless God and God will bless you. And as we've seen in David's life, his blessing will allow you to do great exploits for his kingdom. And when I say for his kingdom, that means through your family, through your friends, through those you work with, through all the masses of this people in this city, God will work through you. Church, I believe we are on the cusp of something very specially special happening here at High Point. There's a tangible sense of urgency and there's also an expectation uh, that God is about to break loose in our church and to do things that we have maybe never seen before. I'm talking about a revival, a, a spiritual renewal within our church and within our community. And I'm talking about a church full of people who, who daily walk in the fullness of God and who operate in their spiritual giftings and who touch the lives of others. And all of us doing so in such a way 
that it makes those on the outside attracted to what it is that we've got going on in our lives and in this church, all because of what they see going on within our lives. I'm talking about people being healed. I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people receiving salvation. I'm talking about lives being transformed by the love of God and the power of God. Make no mistake about it. God has something special in store for this church and this community. But you must open yourself up to God's presence in your life. You must draw near to him. You must seek and learn the word of God. You must spend each day in prayer communicating to him. And I think it's only fitting today, two weeks away from Resurrection Sunday, when we celebrated the birth or the, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, that this would be a day of recommitment, a day where everyone in this place looks deep inside, not our neighbor's heart, not our husband or wife's heart, but our own heart, and ask, am I giving my all? Am I giving God everything that I am? And if you find that you are not, commit to Jesus, the son of David, that you will start today. I have asked the worship team to sing an old hymn that focuses on this very thing. The hymn is titled, I Surrender All. I want us to sing this song together. And while we're singing, if you feel compelled to come to this altar, you can. If you just wanna worship God from your seat, you can. Maybe today you want to recommit your all to the Lord. You can do so while this song is going on. Or maybe you've never accepted Jesus' gift of salvation. Well, you can come down here and pray. To accept the Lord, the Bible says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and it is with your mouth that you profess faith and you are saved. Or maybe you just want to spend some time with the Lord in prayer. I don't know. While we sing, feel free to come to this altar if you want. At the end of the song, we will close this service in prayer. Let's let God know today that we are willing to be used by him and that we are willing to give him our all and no longer compartmentalize him in our life. Sure. 
Father, we thank you that we can learn so much through the life of a man who lived so long ago, but who had a heart for you. And Father, it just goes to show us that if we have that same kind of a heart, we shudder to think of the things you could do through us individually. Pray for my church family, Lord, everyone here that's represented in this place. Pray that we would see the significance and the importance of not compartmentalizing you, but letting you be Lord of all. At work, at home, at church, in the public. Father, we're the same no matter where we go. That the love of Christ shines through us to a very dark and hurting world. Father, I pray that you would use members in this congregation to do great exploits for your kingdom. They are great soul winners in this place. They are great disciplers in this place. They are those who have the attention in the ear of many, many people who would listen to them. They would share their good, your goodness with them. So God, take down those barriers, those walls, those fears, those things that prevent us from being fully used and utilized by you. And God, let us watch as you do amazing things through us. Pray, Father, that as we depart this place today, that your Holy Spirit would go with us, guiding and directing the steps we take, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, Lord, that they would be conversations that would build people up and not tear them down. And Father, that we would shine like bright lights, the love of Jesus Christ to all situations and to every person that we come into contact with. Father, I pray that it be so evident in our hearts and our lives that, that people could not help but see it. And they would actually come to us and say, what is it about you? And then we op you open that door for us to walk through and share your goodness. Father, I pray for a divine appointment for each one of us this week. That someone will come across our path and we can share your goodness with them. So use us, Father. And until we come back together again and worship you as a church family, I pray that you will keep us safe from sickness and disease. Keep us safe from any accidents that might befall us. And Father, as we leave here today, I pray that we would go in love, 
Love would be our calling card. It would not just be a love that would be come through the words we speak, but it would be a tangible love that could be felt by all around us. Father, let us walk in peace and love as we leave, loving you, trusting you in all things, putting our faith in you that you can do great things through us. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here.